please be seated and turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you this morning, you can find the verses in the back of your order of worship. Uh, we're, uh, as may seem obvious here, we're getting started on a new series in the book of Genesis. Uh, it's one of those things that for a, a pastor is both exciting and, uh, and a bit nerve-wracking. Uh, obviously, all of Scripture, uh, Paul tells us, is useful for correction. All of it's inspired. All of it is God's Word. And yet there are uh, times when we come to a text that is so momentous that, uh, that as a pastor, you, you almost despair of being able to say uh, all that needs to be said, of capturing uh, just how important the text is. And so I'm going to do my best, uh, but we're also going to count on the Spirit to use me uh, in weak and fallible instrument that I am. Uh, some of the, the questions you may have about these opening verses in Genesis, these, uh, this first chapter in particular, questions about the length of a creation day or the age of the earth, we're, we're actually not going to take those things up as we work our way through the text. Uh, we have a, a podcast you may be aware of, and on that podcast recently, Pastor Nathan and I and Jen talked through some of those things. But the, the main issue is that, that that's not the main issue. The, the question of how long a creation day is or how old the earth is, those are not the main questions being addressed here. That is not God's primary concern in revealing to us what's revealed in chapter 1. That doesn't mean that, that there's no insight in these verses into those, uh, the, the questions and their answers, but that we don't want to be distracted from what it is that God is saying first and foremost in the text here. And I think as we go through both today and in the weeks to come, uh, and, and if by the power of the Spirit I am able to, to draw out for you the things that God intends in these verses, the things that, that God is most determined to impress upon our hearts and our minds in these verses, I think as we go through it, and particularly when we get done and you look back, the question of how long a creation day is and how old the earth is, I hope they seem almost silly in comparison to the great gravity, uh, the depth and the richness, the power of God that is on display in these verses. There is a truth as uh, respecting the question of how long a creation day was. It had a particular length. Uh, and we may have insight into that here in the text, but it's just not important enough for us to give it the time that many believe we ought to give it today. Now, we're going to be focused instead on the God who reveals Himself in these verses. God's power and might and goodness and perfections are worthy of our praise and thanksgiving and worship and service. And that's what's on display in these verses here. God is a God that brings order from chaos. He's a God that does all things well. And because He is the God who's begun all things, we know that He has an end a purpose for all things, and will bring all things to their perfect conclusion in His perfect time. As we take these truths up in the weeks to come, again, the question of the age of the earth and length of a creation day ought to fall quickly away in importance. As one commentator says, the biblical creation narrative's quintessential teaching is that the universe is wholly the purpose, uh, purposeful product of divine intelligence that is, of the one self-sufficient, self-existing God who is a transcendent being outside of nature and who is sovereign 
over space and time. Our task in this study is to have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth about this God and about His creation. And So may God grant us the wisdom and insight by His Spirit working through His Word in the months to come. Let's pray and we'll read the text this morning. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that, uh, that as we open up Genesis, that You will indeed work through the reading and the preaching of Your Word. Father, fill us with a godly fear. Fill us with uh, an awe of You who have created all things. Father, we pray that this morning Your Spirit will be at work in the reading and preaching of Your Word in such a way as to change us, to transform us, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three things this morning. The supremacy of God is revealed. The supremacy of God is revealed. The authority of God is revealed. And the goodness of God is revealed. The supremacy, the authority, and the goodness of God are all revealed in our text this morning. First, the supremacy of God is revealed. Note that the text bursts out asserting God's, uh, uh, His existence and immediately His power without apology or defense without description or fanfare, without concerns to explain His origin or place. He simply is the God who is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God is Elohim in the text. Uh, God, as you, you may know, throughout the Old Testament, reveals Himself according to different titles and different names. And it's important that we understand here that this is not uh, by name Yahweh who is creating, but Elohim. Yahweh is the the particular God of Israel. He is God as He reveals Himself to His people, that people for whom He has a particular covenant love. But here, God reveals Himself as Elohim. He is the God of all things. God is not merely the God of Israel. He's not merely a particular regional God in the ancient Near East. Uh, who somehow, through mythology, attains a sort of uh, priority over all of the other gods and manages to survive uh, throughout history where the others have fallen away. He is the one true God over all things. He is Elohim. And His creative power extends to all things and is not limited to one nation or even one planet. And the first act ascribed to him is nothing less than the creation of all things, the heavens and the earth. In the original language here in the Hebrew, there's no one word for universe or cosmos. Uh, heavens and earth is a, uh, what we call a mirrorism. It's, it's these two words together, and using them together in this way describes everything that is without exception. God is the creator of everything that is, without exception. All things exhaustively. And this God is not merely capable of creation, but is the one who alone created all things that exist. Unlike the creation myths that were common in the ancient Near East, and and to which this creation narrative in some ways conforms. 
it breaks with the other ancient Near Eastern understanding of creation inasmuch as God simply wills it, and it is. Unlike the other ancient Near Eastern religions, our God did not create by means of a a struggle with a great foe. Creation was not the result of warfare. Nor did He create by accident, which is the impression you get in some of those ancient Near Eastern creation myths from Egypt or from Babylon. Our God alone creates all things. He simply wills them into existence. This first verse is a a summary of the rest of chapter 1. And really this first account in chapter 1, it it, uh, crosses over into chapter 2 through verse 3. All of this ought to be taken as a unit through chapter 2, verse 3. Verse 1 is a, a summary describing the whole Verse 2 and the rest of this chapter and the beginning of chapter 2 is going to be an unpacking of this, a description of how God goes about it. In verse 1 we read that He created all things, and in the verses that follow we'll hear how He has done so. And when we speak of all things, when the text says that that God created the heavens and the earth, it's exhaustively all things. And I've already said that, so it feels like I'm repeating myself, but I need to press this home. Time is a thing. Not only all substance, but every single thing that exists, including time, is created by God. God has created all time and space. And so in order for Him to have done so, Some things are already coming into perspective about this God who has created. If it is indeed true, and of course we believe that it is, that God has created all things, everything in time and in space, then there are several things that we know already about this God. First, that God is utterly transcendent. Completely other. He's he's not a part of creation, and at the pinnacle of it, He stands outside of it entirely. He is utterly transcendent, standing apart from His creation, outside of time and space. He is not subject to the laws of physics, or bound by time in His being or His knowledge. He is eternally existent. We know that He is infinitely creative, He conceived of every single created thing and all of their relationships and did so out of nothing. When we imagine, or when we create, we we have to take up pre-existing things. We have to take up pre-existent matter or pre-existent ideas. At best, our creativity is one of taking what God has given us and putting it together in some new way but not so for God. God brings it out of nothing. God is unimaginatively powerful. We can't possibly grasp the power of God, even on display here, even in as clear a statement as He has created all of time and space, we still struggle to grasp the immense and infinite power of God. He not only manipulated all of the elements into the existence we know, 
but he created those elements out of nothing. He simply willed them into existence. God is transcendent and creative and powerful and infinitely and perfectly so in every respect. Before we can go on in the construction of any theology, before we can, can begin to build any kind of cosmology, before we can describe our world and all existence in any meaningful way, we must begin with God. We're confronted by the truth and power and beauty of the one who has created all things. The assumption of the text is that he simply is and is all powerful. These things matter. The the scripture opens by asserting these things about God. What we know about ourselves, what we know about our world, we know because we have first known God and we have known who He is. Often in in any kind of uh, art criticism, uh, whether that's, you know, some song that a pop band has written uh, or some piece of art that you look at that hangs on the wall in a museum, it's important that you know the artist. It's important that you know something about what motivated the artist. What were the circumstances in which the artist made this thing? It helps us to understand the art. Perhaps it helps us to appreciate the art. And in the same way, God begins by introducing us to Himself. And it's from a knowledge of Him that we enter into an understanding of His creation, including us. If we don't know God first, if we begin our theology anywhere else, our theology is destined to go wrong. Calvin is famous for having opened his uh, institutes of the Christian religion by saying that, that all knowledge comes down to this, first we must know God, and only then may we know ourselves. And he's getting that from things like this, that God himself, when, he, when he, he comes to us and reveals himself to us, he begins by introducing himself in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We have to pause there. And we have to meditate on the truths about God that are revealed in that simple sentence. Second, this morning, the authority of God is revealed. God's authority over all creation is established by His act of creation. All of us intuitively understand that when someone creates something, it belongs to the one who created it. We have laws that protect the rights of one and and guarantee the right of ownership to the one who has created something by asserting that God has created all things by Himself alone. Genesis 1 asserts and recognizes His right to rule and absolute sovereignty over His creation. It's no mistake that over the last two centuries, we have increasingly in the the secular world denied and moved away from any explanation of our, our origins that roots itself in God. We have have sought, culturally speaking, to come up with a natural explanation that removes God from the equation of creation. And going, going hand in hand with culture moving in this direction has been a rejection 
of His authority, a rejection of His sovereignty by asserting that God has created all things by Himself alone. Again, Genesis 1 asserts and recognizes His right to rule in absolute sovereignty over His creation. The first half of verse 2 implies this as well. We've moved from the summary statement that God made all things to the introductory statement of His created work. That is, God began by creating the elements from which He would create all things. And in step one of creation, that matter had no organization. It was empty, useless, lifeless. It as yet had no purpose. It was achieving no end. We, we get some of that insight here. Of course, it's, it's perfectly well communicated in the English here. The earth was without, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Hebrew here is tohu, babohu, without form and void. It's, it's a bit like our English expression, topsy-turvy, right? It's, it's intended not only to communicate these facts, Right of, of it being formless and empty, but even in the sound of the words to communicate the, the purposelessness, even in some sense the chaos, the lack of organization. It's as though the artist had stretched a canvas over a frame and mixed paints on a palette. All is potential. All is ready and awaiting the Master's touch. And the Master does not need to ask permission, but places each stroke of the brush where He wills, when He wills, in the color that He wills, all for the purpose and end which He desires. The artist knows what it is he wishes to create and why he wishes to create it. And when he creates for himself, he needs no one's permission. And having completed his work, the artist may do what he likes with it. He can give it away or sell it. He can display it or he can burn it on a pyre if he so desires. It is his to do with as he will. By not only revealing to us that all things have been created by God, but by leading with this truth, the point is made with emphasis that God has infinite and perfect authority over all created things. He is alone in this authority, sharing it with no other, relying on no other, contending with no other. For those of us who, who know Christ, who are trusting in Christ, this truth, maybe it's at best a good reminder. Although I suspect as we struggle during the, the week, day in and day out with temptation and sin, it's a needed reminder for all of us and a helpful reminder that God is utterly sovereign and has every right to rule. Increasingly, the culture in which we live denies this right to God, rebels against the one who rules rebels against the very one who has created all things and all of us. And so we see from this truth several things this morning. God is to be obeyed in all that He commands. Why, why do we Christians 
believe that God is the one who gets to decide what is right and wrong. It's because we know that He has created all things and all things are His, and He has the right to rule. God is to be obeyed in all that He commands. He has the power to enforce what He commands. And because He has the wisdom to command what is good, we're called to obey Him. God is to be obeyed in all that He commands. God is just in all that He commands. We're often deluded into thinking we know better what is right and good, and we defy God's own commands, even thinking Him unjust for commanding what He wills. But all of His commands are just because He is the Creator of all things, and all things are His, and He may dispose of them as He wills. Maybe this is This feels cold. Maybe it feels harsh. We've not yet gotten to the gospel, to the good news. We've not yet begun to unpack what kind of God this is that rules with absolute sovereignty. And that matters. But before we ever come to deal with His grace and His mercy and His love, we must first acknowledge that He is the God who has created all things. And that that fact alone means that He deserves our obedience, our worship, our service. God is to be obeyed in all that He commands. He is just in all that He commands. And He is just in all of His wrath against those who disobey Him and all His discipline of those He loves. Like children, we often resent God We resent Him for His wrath against us in our sin. We resent His discipline when it is on us as His children, but both His wrath and His discipline are just and wise and good. It's it's going to be building on these truths that we come to the Gospel. Building on these truths that we come to understand who God is and who we are and what He is owed. And first, before we can go any further, to recognize that that we have violated His commands and are in need of salvation. In our verses this morning, just these two short verses, we see the supremacy of God. We see the authority of God. And finally this morning, we see the goodness of God revealed. It's, it's, it's hidden a bit. It's not explicit. We've got to do a little bit of work to see it. But it is here, legitimately, in the verse. God already, having in that, that first verse, revealed all of these things about Himself. It's in the second half of verse 2 that we begin already to see His goodness. We have a simple statement that tells us that the Spirit was engaged in this work of creation, but also gives us our first insight into the goodness of God. Look at the text. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's this this chaos, this disorganization, this lack of purpose. These things are just there, and they're doing nothing and going nowhere. But it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word translated hover here in the ESV is not a common word in the Old Testament. But it occurs, it's a verb, it occurs in this this same verb form in Deuteronomy 32.11. 
where else they're used and looking to see how they're used there in order to understand what they might mean. And in Deuteronomy 32.11, it describes the action of an eagle hovering over its chicks. It's a stance that conveys both protection and readiness for action. In our verse this morning, it suggests that this so far chaotic, disorganized mass of the elements is not the final state of things, nor will it be allowed to develop apart from God's will and His purposes. The Spirit hovers over the face of the waters filled with promise and power and potential as it anticipates its organizing work. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says of this verse, even the negative elements of the pre-created state, darkness and chaotic waters are under God's dominion and brought within his protective restraints. And so what do we learn about God from the activity of his spirit in verse 2? We learn that God is actively governing his creation. God reigns over chaos and disorder, bringing it into order to serve His purposes, to reveal Himself, and therefore glorify Himself. God is actively governing His creation. We learn that God is imminent. You see, already from the the opening words of the verse, in the beginning, God created all things, time and space. He is transcendent. He is set apart. He is not subject to the creation, is not a part of the creation, but stands apart from it, is utterly different. And in that way, transcendent. But we don't even get to the end of verse 2 of the text, and God is present. He's imminent. His Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. It's implied in the fact that we we see here he's actively governing. It's worth stating it explicitly. Though he is transcendent, standing apart from his creation as the one who creates, he is also imminent with his creation to organize and govern it. He has not abandoned his creation to itself or left the work unfinished. This is a halfway house for many people today. They're they're not willing to go so far as to, to call themselves atheists. They look around and recognize that there must be a greater explanation than the, the materialism that is described in the evolution, uh, the theory of evolution. They, they recognize there must be more than this, but they can't bring themselves to, to believe wholeheartedly in the God of Scripture. And so they imagine that there, there was some some power, some force. Maybe it was personal, maybe it wasn't, but whatever it was, it's moved on. It's sort of spun things into existence and has moved on to other things. And we are left to the laws created by that God, but He is not present. You can't get through the second verse of the Bible without God denying this absolutely. The Spirit hovers over the face of the waters, and it is the Spirit of God. God is actively governing His creation. God is imminent. God's government is good. This presence is one of both protection and restraint. God will ensure that all of the work of creation, of organizing the elements, will unfold according to His plan and purpose.
So much is revealed already about God in the opening two verses of Genesis. For those who don't know this God this morning, He's revealed to us in Genesis 1 in power. There's a reason the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. You say, well, how, how can such a person be a fool if they've never heard? But Paul tells us in Romans 1 that all are without excuse. Listen to Paul from Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's not because I spent a week working really hard to be creative with the reading of these verses that I'm able to stand before you this morning and say that in these two short verses... All of these things are revealed about our God. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that these things are revealed in creation. He says, these things having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They became fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Listen, this morning, if you are within hearing of the preaching of the Word and you do not believe that there is a God, creation proves otherwise. And if you will not receive and believe that there is a God because of the testimony of creation around you, it's because you suppress that truth in unrighteousness. The fool says in his heart that there is no God this morning. We want to encourage you to turn away from that foolishness. There is a God. And it turns out as we continue in Genesis over the weeks to come, we'll come to Genesis 3 and we'll find out that all of us have sinned and rebelled against this God that's been described this morning. We are rightly, justly under His wrath and curse. And God would be justified in saving no one from His wrath. But God has not left us in our sin and our misery. He has sent a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This God is not only transcendent, He is imminent. He has come in the person of Jesus Christ to dwell in the midst of His people for our salvation. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, trust in Him and Him alone, then the wrath of God is removed. And better than that, this God described today, this all-powerful utterly transcendent God invites you to be in fellowship with Him, in relationship with Him. And we do that in the person of Jesus Christ by believing in Him and repenting of our sins. Christians, be encouraged. All the things we've said about God this morning, those are for you. I don't mean they were said for you. I mean they are true for you. The God who is almighty, all-powerful, 
whose, whose creative abilities, for lack of a better word, are infinite. This God who's utterly transcendent and yet at the same time imminent is our God and He is for us. I mean, have you ever tried to imagine these two verses? Like if you were present. What it would have looked like? What the experience would have been like? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Christian, that Spirit lives in you. And not in the mumbly-jumbly way that people talk about Spirit in the world today. It's not an idea. You, you don't have some particular Spirit in the sense that you embody some ideal. The Spirit of the living God who created all things and whose spirit hovered over the face of the waters at creation itself lives in you and is the source of all of our power in the Christian life. This spirit had the power to create on day one and has the power to recreate in you the image of Christ. What a comfort to us. What an encouragement. We're out in the world all week long battling sin, battling temptation, all too often failing, finding ourselves grieving and hating our sin. If not grieving and hating our sin as a Christian should, at least the conscience that belongs to all of us is burdened by the reality of our sin. And we may even at times see how our sin in the world creates messes in our families, and in our churches, and in our place of work, and in our neighborhoods. What hope do we have, brothers and sisters? Those of us who are, trusting, who are trusting in Christ have this hope that the Spirit who hovered over the face of the waters, that Spirit of God, we are told by God Himself dwells in us who are trusting in Christ. And He dwells in us for a purpose. He dwells in us to make us more and more like Christ, to, to beautify us as a bride waiting for the groom. And the day is coming when Jesus Christ will return for His bride. And because we are indwelt by the Spirit, we will recognize Him when He comes and we will be ready because God is faithful to complete the work that He's begun in us. What a great hope is ours in Jesus Christ and in the truth of this God that we've read about this morning. Let's pray.